Okay. Good morning, everyone. Um, Jeanette, if you can hear me, why don't you nod your head? Okay, good, good. Uh, this morning has been uh, just one little internet problem after another, but we're connected on Zoom and I've got the recorder working. So hopefully this will all come off okay. Um, <clears throat> my uh, The topic that I selected for this morning, uh, I, I woke up, what was it, I guess, uh, Friday morning and I realized, okay, I think what I'll do is uh, devote a whole Dharma talk to ACT, it's uh, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. I've, I've mentioned it in past talks and gone into it in a bit of detail, but I never really devoted a whole um, you know, chunk of time to, to going through it, and I thought it's something I've always wanted to do. And when I mentioned that to Chris, to my wife, uh, she said, well, I've got just the book for that. And uh, so she gave me a copy, and I've read it, most of it, and uh, I'm going to be taking some selections out of it. Uh, the name of the book, and I guess the name of my talk, is The Happiness Trap. It was written by a guy named Russ Harris, who's uh, one of the uh, therapists who uses and has popularized ACT. Um, let me just say a little bit about uh, that form of therapy and where it fits in the whole world of, uh, of therapies that people offer. Um, it's, it's part of the so-called third wave of behavioral therapies. And uh, I think the first of those was dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, which was developed by a woman named Marsha Linehan. And uh, it was the first uh, kind of talk therapy that ever showed any kind of effectiveness in dealing with people with personality disorders, which is pretty remarkable. Um, I want to be careful about making claims for any of these therapies because as I looked into it, you know, researching this talk, um, it's, a, it's really tough to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And, uh, you know, there's a real effort to put it on a scientific basis and do uh, controlled experiments, but there's always the issue of uh, experimenter bias and replicating results. Um, so just as a <clears throat> sort of cautionary word about any kind of therapy, uh, I was talking with Chris, with my wife, and she said, which I suspected, that really the most, uh, the most important factor in whether someone shows improvement and whether whether you know you get good results from any kind of therapy or not is the commitment of of the person of the client uh, it's it's really it's it's the same as in spiritual practice you know the the drive the seriousness the level level of commitment that we bring to our practice has way more to do with uh, how it goes for us than the particular practice that we pick up, that we feel we have affinity for. And then the second biggest factor uh, in therapy is the relationship with the therapist. And there again, you know, for practice it makes such a difference. It isn't necessarily that one teacher is better than another, but uh, we have affinity for some teachers, for one teacher more than another, and having that student-teacher bond or the client-therapist bond uh, is another really big factor in how well things progress. <clears throat> but then, you know, it does matter, you know, exactly what practice are we following and uh, some will no doubt perform better than others on average, uh, but it's always, it's always, <laughs> do you have an affinity with that particular practice or with that particular therapy? So just with that out of the way, I want to say I think that ACT therapy is pretty great uh, and it, it fits really, really well with Buddhist teaching. In fact, one of the knocks against it <clears throat> that I read early on was that this is just rehashed Buddhism. 
And it is true that, uh, you know, I think the, the, the guy who founded, uh, or the, for one of the first per, per people to bring uh, ACT to life was a guy named uh, Stephen Hayes. And uh, I think his very first book begins with the phrase, life is suffering. Uh, and that's really one of the prime, prime tenets of this form of therapy, which is that pain in life is inevitable. There's no way that as human beings we're ever going to be free from pain. It's just part of, it's baked right in. Um, we have bodies. This can, you can go back to Bodhidharma. Anyone who has a human body is an heir to pain and suffering. <clears throat> the problem begins when we try to escape it, when we're, when we're, when our, our, and it's perfectly reasonable to try to minimize your pain, but when those efforts uh, become counterproductive, we can get into a world of trouble. And, uh, you know, that's another one of the aspects of ACT therapy is distinguishing between uh, what I like to call clean pain and what they like to call clean pain and dirty pain or uh, I think as the terminology is used now by a lot of people, simple pain and complex pain or pain on top of pain. But anyway, I'm probably getting ahead of myself. Um, I, wanna, I wanna start out by just reading uh, the very end of a uh, interview that Stephen Hayes, it's not the author of the book I'm gonna be dealing with, but this guy is the founder of ACT, uh, that he gave in, in Salon.com. Uh, this followed up on a splashy profile that had been done of him in Time Magazine after his uh, book, first book came out. The interviewer says, in a way, what you're saying is life sucks. Suck it up and move on. And Stephen Hayes replies, well, life is painful, yeah. The first sentence of the book, get out of your mind and into your life, is people suffer. There is a base level of pain, for example, knowing you're going to die. So yes, life includes a big chunk of pain and it includes a big chunk of living. But if you're not willing to have the pain, you're not going to get the living. So with that as an intro, I'm going to sort of... Uh, go into this, uh, to this book. It's called The Happiness Trap. And again, the author is a guy named Russ Harris. And a great place to start is with his uh, explication of exactly what he means by the happiness trap. So this is the first chapter of the book. It's called Fairy Tales. And he says, what's the last line of every fairy, fairy, fairy tale? You got it. They lived happily ever after. And it's not just fairy tales that have happy endings. How about Hollywood movies? Don't they nearly always have some sort of feel-good ending where good triumphs over evil, love conquers all, and the hero defeats the bad guy? And doesn't the same hold true for novels and television programs? We love happy endings because society tells us that's how life should be. All joy and fun, peace and contentment, living happily ever after. But does that sound realistic? Does it fit in with your experience of life? This is one of the four major myths that make up the basic blueprint for the happiness trap. So let's take a look at these myths one by one. <clears throat> so. Myth one, happiness is the natural state for all human beings. And he says, our culture insists that humans are naturally happy, but the statistics, which he'd already quoted in the introduction, clearly disprove this. Remember, one in 10 adults will attempt suicide, one in five will suffer from depression, and what's more, the statistical probability that you will suffer from a psychiatric disorder at some stage in your life is almost 30%. And when you add in all the misery caused by problems that are not classified as psychiatric disorders, loneliness, divorce, work stress, 
midlife crisis, relationship issues, social isolation, prejudice, lack of meaning or purpose, go on and on. Death, divorce, he's mentioned divorce. <clears throat> you start to get some idea of just how rare true happiness really is. Unfortunately, many people walk around with the belief that everyone else is happy except them, and this belief creates even more unhappiness. <clears throat> okay, myth two, if you're not happy, you're defective. Following logically from myth one, Western society assumes that mental suffering is abnormal. It's seen as a weakness or illness, a product of the mind that is somehow faulty or defective. This means when we do inevitably experience painful thoughts and feelings, we often criticize ourselves for being weak or stupid. And I could add to that, we're often impatient with others when they're suffering. Why can't they just snap out of it? Uh, <clears throat> and often in our interactions with them, we're just trying to jolly them out of whatever suffering they're presenting us because we don't want to feel it. We don't want to see it. <clears throat> and he goes on, Acceptance and commitment therapy is based on a dramatically different assumption. The normal thinking process of a healthy human mind will naturally lead to psychological suffering. You're not defective, your mind's just doing what it evolved to do. And elsewhere in the book he makes this a little clearer. Basically it's the whole evolutionary psychology business about how our minds evolved to keep us alive, to protect us from danger. <clears throat> we live in a, in a world where there are no tigers or lions and we're not likely to be suddenly attacked. Most of us are not likely to be, uh, but our minds still go down those paths. We're still always alert for threats and worrying about the worst. He says, fortunately, ACT will teach you to handle your mind more effectively in ways that can dramatically improve your life. Then myth, myth three, to create a better life, we must get rid of negative feelings. This is really helpful. We live in a feel-good society, a culture thoroughly obsessed with finding happiness. And what does that society tell us to do? To eliminate negative feelings and accumulate positive ones in their place. It's a nice theory, and on the surf surface, it seems to make sense. After all, who wants to have unpleasant feelings? But here's the catch. The things we generally value most in life bring with them a whole range of feelings, both pleasant and unpleasant. For example, in an intimate, long-term relationship, although you will experience wonderful feelings, such as love and joy, you will also inevitably experience disappointment and frustration. There is no such thing as the perfect partner, and, the, and sooner or later, conflicts of interest will arise. And the same holds true for just about every meaningful project we embark on. Although they often bring feelings of excitement and enthusiasm, they also generally bring stress, fear, and anxiety. <clears throat> Maybe think about going to Doksan or going to a Sashin. If you believe Myth 3, you're in big trouble. Again the belief that to create a better life you have to get rid of negative feelings. You're in big trouble because it's pretty well impossible to create a better life if you're not prepared to have some uncomfortable feelings. And then finally, myth four. You should be able to control what you think and feel. He says, <clears throat> The fact is we have much less control over our thoughts and feelings than we would like. It's not that we have no control, it's just that we have much less than the experts would have us believe. However, we do have a huge amount of control over our actions, and it's through taking action that we create a rich and meaningful life. <clears throat> I know one of the early examples of ACT in, in action uh, that, I, that I read was a client saying to the therapist, I have to give a talk, um, but I'm really, really anxious. And the therapist reframed that as, 
I have to give a talk and I'm anxious. We always have this feeling, I see it in myself, of somehow or other I've got to get my mind right before I can do this difficult task or this daunting undertaking. Uh, a friend of mine once said, I could do my taxes if I had the right drugs. Um, when I was young, I was deathly afraid of picking up the phone and calling somebody that I didn't know. And uh, you find out as you grow up, I think, that you can do those things. Um, if you're afraid of talking to somebody, you can simply pick the phone up and call them, and the next thing you know, you're talking to them. And when you've done it a few times, when you've sort of walked through your fear, walked through that unpleasant feeling that you don't want to feel, you can find out that it's not so bad, it's not so real. But you have to be willing to suffer in order to do it. There's just no way around it. Think. I may be, to a large extent, preaching to the choir because nobody's really um, kept at Zen practice for any length of time and not had to face up to things that were painful. Um, you know, simply physical pain for starters. Um, but then also, you know, if you're working with a teacher, just the anxiety that may come up in going to Doksan, uh, or if you go to Sashin. I said before, you know, there's a lot of um, trepidation that naturally fits in. It helps so much to realize that that's normal, that, that there's nothing unusual about you. Um, you're just feeling what a normal human being does. And to realize that those feelings are not dispositive. They don't determine what you have to do or what you can't do. And ACT is a lot about trying to get us to uh, experientially uh, come to learn that. <clears throat> he goes on uh, to say, the overwhelming majority of self-help programs subscribe to myth four, that is that you could, should be able to control what you think and feel. The basic claim is if you challenge your negative thoughts or images and instead repeatedly fill your head with positive thoughts and images, you will find happiness. If only life were that simple. I'm willing to bet that you've already tried countless times to think more positively about things, and yet those negative thoughts keep coming back, don't they? As we saw in the introduction, our minds have evolved over hundreds of thousands of years, over 800,000 years. I don't want to exaggerate the length of time. <clears throat> we uh, strange primates have been on the planet, so let's give it 100,000 years to think the way they do. So it's not likely that a few positive thoughts will change them much. It's not that these techniques have no effect. They can often make you feel better temporarily. But they will not get rid of negative thoughts over the long term. And the same holds true for negative feelings, such as anger, fear, sadness, insecurity, and guilt. There are multitudes of psychological strategies to get rid of such feelings but you've undoubtedly discovered that even if they go away, after a while, they're back. And then they go away again, and then they come back again, and so on and so on. The likelihood is, if you're like most other humans on the planet, you've already spent a lot of time and effort trying to have good feelings instead of bad ones, and you've probably found that as long as you're not too distressed, you can, to some degree, pull it off. But you've probably also discovered that as your level of distress increases, your ability to control your feelings progressively lessens. Sadly, myth four is so widely believed that we tend to feel inadequate when our attempts to control our thoughts and feelings fail. It's a point that uh, Joko Beck makes, uh, <clears throat> which is that as we develop in practice or in any uh, endeavor, we find we can handle more and more. We definitely uh, get better at handing, handling negativity. But for everyone, there's always a point at which it's too much, in which we shut down, basically. Um, we become dysfunctional. 
and we resort to strategies that may not work. So even if you totally buy into a therapy like ACT and you work with a therapist, you're going to run into cases where um, you're just you're just running away from your pain. We can we there's a limit. All you can do is just uh, lick your wounds and and try again later. If you if you think okay this doesn't work or I'm no good, um, then you're then you're going to be out of the game altogether. So it's good to have some sort of measure of modesty about how much we can do, and uh, and realize you know things things happen and we react. Sometimes we don't react well. Uh, it may be regrettable, but it's okay. Just being able to apply some degree of acceptance, to be able to accept even when we can't accept. Accept the fact that, okay, I'm locked down now. I can't really hear what anybody's telling me. I'm just so freaked out. But to know, the one thing we learn <clears throat> as Buddhists is that things change. Things will shift and we'll get our footing at some point. <clears throat> There's so much in this book that I'm going to have to cover, so I'm going to skip ahead here. to uh, uh, chapter, the next chapter, which is called Vicious Cycles. And he uh, begins with an example, with a, a case. It says, Michelle has tears streaming down her eyes. What's wrong with me, she asks. I have a great husband, great kids, a great job, a lovely home. I'm fit, healthy, well off, so why aren't I happy? A lot of people who came into practice with that question. He says, it's a good question. Michelle seems to have everything she wants in life, so what's going wrong? We'll come back to her later in this chapter, but for now, let's take a look at what's happening in your life. Presumably, if you're reading this book, <clears throat> your life could work better than it does right now. Of course, <clears throat> the people listening to me didn't choose to read the book, but let's say, presumably, if you're practicing Zen, your life could work better than it does right now. Maybe your relationship is in trouble, or you're lonely, or heartbroken. Maybe you hate your job, or perhaps you've lost it. Maybe your health is deteriorating. Maybe someone you loved has died or rejected you or moved far away. Maybe you have low self-esteem or no self-confidence. Maybe you have an addiction, or financial problems, or legal difficulties. Maybe you're suffering from depression, anxiety, or burnout. Or maybe you just feel stuck or disillusioned. Whatever the problem is, it undoubtedly gives rise to unpleasant thoughts and feelings, and you've probably spent a lot of time and effort trying to escape them or blot them out. But suppose those attempts to get rid of your bad thoughts and feelings are actually making your life worse. In ACT, we have a saying for this, the solution is the problem. <clears throat> and then he says, how does a solution become a problem? What do you do when you have an itch? You scratch it, right? And usually this works so well you don't even think about it. Scratch the itch and it goes away. Problem solved. But suppose one day you develop a patch of eczema. It's red, irritated skin. The skin is very itchy, so naturally you scratch it. However, with this condition, the skin cells are highly sensitive, and when you scratch them, they release chemicals called histamines, which lead to further irritation and inflammation. So very soon the itch returns, but with a greater intensity than before. And of course, if you scratch it again, it gets even worse. <clears throat> I had wicked as eczema through my childhood, my teenage years, and uh, even into my 20s. It says, scratching is a good solution for a fleeting itch in normal healthy skin, but for a persistent itch in abnormal skin, scratching is harmful. The solution becomes part of the problem. This is commonly known as a vicious cycle. He goes through and gives a few examples. I can't read them all. Um, 
Yvonne feels anxious in social situations. She copes with this by drinking heavily. In the short term, alcohol reduces her anxiety, but the next day she feels hungover and tired, and she often regrets the money she spent on alcohol or worries about the embarrassing things she did while under the influence. She does escape the anxiety for a while, but the price she pays is a lot of other unpleasant feelings. And there are many other examples like this. <clears throat> I picked the alcohol one because that fits with my experience. All of these are examples that he lists of trying to get rid of, avoid, or escape from unpleasant feelings. And we call these control strategies because they're attempts to directly control how you feel. And then he has a table of some of the most common ones divided into flight and fight. So flight strategies are things like hiding or escaping, don't go out if you feel anxious, stay in your room, uh, distraction, uh, do something different, watch TV, surf the internet, smoke a cigarette, eat some ice cream, or zoning out or numbing. It says you may try to cut off from your thoughts and feelings by zoning out or making yourself numb, most commonly through the use of medication, drugs, or alcohol. Some people do their zoning out by sleeping excessively or simply by staring at the walls. <laughs> that, uh, I found that a little amusing. And it's true. You can do Zazen and use it to zone out. Um, it's probably a real good way to zone out if that's your goal. <clears throat> in, in Zen practice, uh, zoning out is, is not uh, what we're looking for at all. But it is, it is sometimes a danger, especially if we're practicing in order not to feel bad feelings. You can easily slip into that uh, strategy, and then your practice really tends to go nowhere. Then the fight strategies, there's suppression, where you try to just push the unwanted thoughts and feelings down. Arguing, where you argue with your thoughts. For example, if your mind says you're a failure, you may argue back, oh no, I'm not. Just look at everything I've achieved in my work. <clears throat> or alternately, uh, alternatively, you may argue against reality, protesting it shouldn't be like this. And then there's taking charge, uh, telling yourself to snap out of it, to stay calm or to cheer up, or bullying yourself, calling yourself a loser or an idiot. Who hasn't done that? <clears throat> he goes on, the problem with control, problem with using methods like these to try to control your thoughts and feelings, the answer is nothing if you use them in moderation, if you use them only in situations where they can work, use, if, if using them doesn't stop you from doing the things that you value. Sort of like his initial example of scratching an itch. Uh, if that takes care of it, then it's fine. <clears throat> you're anxious and you distract yourself for a little bit and then go ahead and do whatever it was, well, that's not a problem. But if you're anxious and in order to avoid your anxiety, you never do what it was that you wanted to do, then that's changing your life. Um, AA deals a lot with our history of using alcohol as an avoidance strategy. And uh, the, first, the first step in AA is we came to believe that we're, we were powerless over our drinking and our lives had become unmanageable. And that second part, the unmanageability of the life of somebody who's thoroughly addicted is what he's pointing to here. When, we, when all of our efforts are uh, organized around escaping bad feelings, then things go south. Okay, I'm gonna, I think that sort of sets the, the stage pretty well. And I'm gonna move on to um, a little deeper in the book where he uh, talks about the six core principles of ACT. <clears> he <throat> says they all work together to help you develop a life-changing mindset known as psychological flexibility. Um, you know, like every system, there's 
jargon that, that has a meaning within it, but that's a pretty good word, psychological flexibility. I think everybody intuitively understands how helpful it is to be able to, let's say, roll with the punches, to, to be able to take setbacks and not be destroyed, not to be brittle. So psychological flexibility, pretty good word. It says the greater your psychological flexibility, the better you can handle painful thoughts and feelings, and the more effectively you can take action to make your life rich and meaningful. <clears throat> As we progress through the book, we will work through these six core principles one by one. So first he's going to take a very brief look at each of them. First one is diff diffusion. So this is relating to your thoughts in a new way so they have less impact and influence over you. As you learn to defuse painful and unpleasant thoughts, they will lose their ability to frighten, disturb, worry, stress, or depress you. And as you learn to defuse unhelpful thoughts such as self-limiting beliefs and harsh self-criticisms, they will make, have much less influence over your behavior. <clears throat> Number two, he calls it expansion. Uh, the official act term is acceptance. I think I, ex, expansion is a nice word because it sort of alludes to uh, being able to take more in. <clears throat> Excuse me just a moment. I'm going to interrupt myself and try to get this charger to work on my phone so I don't die out on everybody here. The technical problems just never stop happening. Sort of like life. Okay. All right. Seems to be charging now. <clears throat> Otherwise, about 15 minutes from now, I'm going to die out. So going on with expansion. Making rooms for unpleasant feelings and sensations instead of trying to suppress them or push them away. That's basically his, his definition. As you open up and make space for these feelings, you will find they bother you much less and they move on much more rapidly instead of hanging around and disturbing you. Uh, the third is connection. Actually, in ACT, the, uh, the official thing is contact with the present moment and I think I like that better. Um, instead of dwelling on the past or worrying about the future, you are deeply connected with the present moment. And for those of us who are practicing Zen, this is extremely familiar. This is really what our practice is about. Uh, being here. As Ram Dass said, be here now. Fourth is the observing self. Powerful aspect of the mind, which has been largely ignored by Western psychology until now. As you get to know this part of yourself, you will further transform your relationship with difficult thoughts and feelings. And uh, <clears throat> this is a lot of what we're working with in our meditation. It's the observing self is not the self that thinks; it's the self that knows it thinks. And uh, <clears throat> I think maybe the one pro problem I have with totally relating to what he's saying is that we, when we talk about it, we talk about it there, as if there is some self, some thing that's doing this observing or doing this thinking. And, uh, of course, we know when we've looked, uh, so far nobody's, no one has found <clears throat> such a thing. But in conventional terms we can talk about and we can distinguish between the thinking self and the observing self. <clears throat> and then number five is values. Clarifying and connecting with your values is an essential step for making life meaningful. Your values are reflections of what's most important in your heart. <clears throat> what sort of person you want to be, what is significant and meaningful for you, and what you want to stand for in this life. Your values provide direction for your life and motivate you to make important changes. And then the final point is committed action. A rich and meaningful life is created through taking action, but not just any action. It happens through effective action guided by and motivated by your values. And in particular, it happens through committed action, action that you take again and again 
no matter how many times you fail or go off track. <clears throat> so basically what you have with these six points is the first four, as he points out later, are really about mindfulness. They're about um, disconnecting from your thoughts, uh, being able to be with your feelings as they are, being connected to the present moment, and having a sense of the observing self. Act doesn't try to bring people to awakening, um, <clears throat> but we could argue that if you follow that path and if you have a strong motivation to truly understand that you can have some insight as well and that will help. That won't <laughs> that's not going to take you out of the world of pain and suffering uh, or make you bulletproof or make you able to handle things that are beyond your capacity, but it, it does help, it can help. And then the last two, values and action, uh, when you combine that with the mindfulness, leads to psychological flexibility. Um, it's a little dry when you look at it as a, a system, but uh, the most important thing is doing it. And so let me move ahead uh, to what he says about diffusion. And uh, he starts out by explaining what he means by fusion. Fusion is just basically being fused to your thoughts. And I think we all have some experience of this. In a way, anytime you're thinking, uh, you're involved in your thoughts, you are fused. You, you don't realize that you're thinking. If you find this out doing Zazen, as Roshi points out, when you're lost in thought, you're pretty much helpless. There's nothing you can do about it until you notice. Noticing is where defusion begins. We understand, okay, I'm not my thought. Something, obviously, that we need to work on. That's why it's called practice. So he says, fusion means a blending or melding together. Think of two sheets of metal that are fused together. They're stuck to each other. You can't pull them apart. In ACT, we use the term fusion to mean that a thought and the thing it refers to, the story, that's the thought, and the event, become stuck together as one. We, re we react to words in a crime novel as if someone is really going to be murdered. We react to words like, I'm useless, as if we actually are useless. And we react to words like, I'm going to fail, as if fail failure is a foregone conclusion. In a state of fusion, it seems as if thoughts are a reality. What we're thinking is actually happening here and now. Thoughts are the truth. We completely believe them. Thoughts are important. We take them seriously and give them our full attention. Thoughts are orders. We automatically obey them. Thoughts are wise. We assume they know best and we follow their advice. And finally, thoughts can be threats. Some thoughts can be deeply disturbing, disturbing or frightening and we feel the need to get rid of them. Think I would add to that maybe uh, one of our misconceptions about thoughts is that that's what we think. In a way, it's true. Yeah, if I thought a thought, that's what I think. But it's not necessarily what I believe. We don't decide to have a thought. Thoughts just come unbidden into the mind, and then everything depends on what we do with them. For most of them, you can just let them go. Some of them are calls to action, and then the question is, is this something I want to do or not? Or as uh, he puts it in his instruction, is this helpful or is this not helpful? There's a tendency to fixate on, is this true or not true? You know, if I think I'm a failure, uh, <clears throat> we can think, well, am I a failure or am I not? But that's really not that effective, it's better to say, does the thought, I'm a failure, okay, whether it's true or not, does that thought help me do what I want to do? And the answer generally is no, it doesn't. Uh, it's, it's interesting because the Buddha does something similar when he talks about speech, uh, talking about right speech. And there's a whole series of questions that he suggests that people ask. And the first is, is this true? The second is, is this helpful? Is this useful? 
<clears throat> and if I remember correctly, then we ask, is this benefit others? We can apply that same filter with our thoughts. And then he gives a bunch of exercises to help people uh, defuse from their thoughts. And I'm just going to lightly touch on these. For people who are doing a lot of Zazen, I think that naturally in the process, uh, there is a diffusion from thoughts will occur if you keep at it. Um, there can be blind spots, and uh, it's quite easy to have pet thoughts that you hang on to and and somehow or other they're, they're walled off like an abscess in the body and, and practice doesn't touch them. Uh, a lot of times they need to be brought out in the open and that's one of the reasons why Roshi recommends to people who are struggling in various ways that they um, bring uh, therapy into the mix. Sometimes it's not enough just to sit. But if you do sit, you do find that thoughts kind of float into the mind and they float out. Some of them are ridiculous. Some of them don't make sense. And uh, we can just learn over time to carry them more lightly. And that's a tremendous aid in living our lives. And if you do ever undertake therapy, uh, you'll find that your Zen practice really helps you to move along in it. So one of the things he suggests is just saying, I'm having the thought that. Uh, this is something that's done quite commonly in mindfulness meditation. Uh, just labeling your thoughts. Uh, it just gives you a little bit of space, a little bit of separation. Uh, another technique he, uh, <laughs> he recommends is called musical thoughts. So here he says, bring to mind a negative self-judgment that commonly bothers you when it comes up. For example, I'm such an idiot. Now hold that thought in your mind and really believe it as much as you can for about 10 seconds. Notice how it affects you. Now imagine taking that same thought and singing it to yourself to the tune of Happy Birthday. Sing it silently inside your head and notice what happens. And uh, other examples he gives are taking, hearing your thoughts in various voices. Uh, one example is the mo mother of the guy in life of, of Brian, uh, with a high screechy, uh, accusatory voice. Uh, just putting it into some different frame sometimes is enough to help people sort of get a little bit of distance. But they're all they're all different techniques, and it's fun to experiment with them. And some of them may be truly helpful. Um, I think the most helpful thing is just the experience of finding out again and again, I don't have to listen to that thought. You know, I don't have to wall myself off from it. And usually that's the problem. <clears throat> the thought brings pain, and so we don't look at it. We just sort of try to distract ourselves or have some other one of the various control strategies that are uh, compound our problems, and we go there. Once we realize that we are a bigger container, that the thoughts can be there and we can continue to do what it is we want to do, uh, their power diminishes. Okay. I'm going to skip ahead again. And uh, this, is, uh, this is a section where he's talking about, he says, uh, about this third point, which let me go back and... Yeah, <clears> the <throat> third, which he calls connection or contact with present reality. So he says, we urge you to pay careful attention to what is actually happening rather than just automatically believing what your mind says. So in other words, once you have some diffusion, you can really turn your attention to what's actually going on. He says, for example, you may have heard of the imposter syndrome. And this is where someone who does his job competently and effectively believes that he's just an imposter, that he doesn't really know what he's doing. The imposter thinks of himself as a fraud 
bluffing his way through everything, always on the verge of being found out. People with imposter syndrome are not paying enough attention to their direct experience, to the clearly observable facts that they are doing their job effectively. Instead, they're paying attention to the overcritical mind that says, you don't know what you're doing. Sooner or later, everyone will see you're a fake. <clears throat> and then he gives his own example. He says, in my early years as a doctor, I had a bad case of imposter syndrome. If one of my patients said, thank you, you're a wonderful doctor, I used to think, yeah, right, you wouldn't say that if you knew what I'm really like. I could never accept such compliments because although in reality I did my job well, my mind kept telling me I was useless and I believed it. It, it occurs to me that part of the problem is uh, in our society, the way it works, we're always trying to put on a good face. We're always trying to <clears throat> appear as competent as we can. And each of us knows that we're kind of showing our best side. And so there's always that going to be that nagging thought about what if people were seeing me at my worst? <clears throat> what if I, uh, you know, were more naked? What would people think? And uh, so I think that's one of the reasons people are so prey to imposter syndrome. He says, whenever I made a mistake, no matter how trivial, two words would automatically blaze into my head. I'm incompetent. Back then, I used to get really upset, believing that thought was the absolute truth, that I'd start doubting myself and stressing out about all the decisions I'd made. Had I misdiagnosed that stomach ache? Had I prescribed the wrong antibiotic? Had I overlooked something serious? Sometimes I would argue with the thought. I'd point out that everyone makes mistakes, including doctors, and that none of the mistakes I made was ever serious, and that overall I did my job very well. At other times I would run through lists of all the things I did well and remind myself of all the positive feedback I'd had from my patients and colleagues, or I'd repeat positive affirmations about my abilities, but none of that got rid of the negative thought or stopped it from bothering me. <clears throat> and that's because one aw shit wipes out a hundred attaboys just the way we're built, uh, can give a hundred talks and people say, oh, that was such a great talk, <clears throat> but then you give one stinker and <laughs> or you worry that you're going to give one stinker and then it's all going to crumble like a house of cards. He says, these days the same two words still often pop up when I make a mistake, but the difference now is they don't bother me because I don't take them seriously. I like the fact that he says they still often pop up because that's what we're going to find with any negative habit. It's in there. You know, the tracks are laid down. And so when circumstances are right, when conditions are good for that particular mode to come on, it's going to come up. But when we've learned to let it come and then let it go, it's not the problem that it was when we felt it was so overwhelming and had to be confronted or gotten rid of. I know that those words are just an automatic response, like the way your eyes shut whenever you sneeze. The fact is, we don't choose most of the thoughts in our head. We do choose a small number of them when, when we're actively planning or mentally rehearsing or being creative, but most of the thoughts in our head just show up of their own accord. We have many thousands of useless or unhelpful thoughts every day, and no matter how harsh, cruel, silly, vindictive, critical, frightening, or downright weird they may be, we can't prevent them from popping up. But just because they appear doesn't mean we have to take them seriously. <clears throat> it is true that the thoughts that come into our head are conditioned by how we've used our mind in the past. So generally, somebody who's been working on themselves effectively for some time will have more uh, friendly and compassionate thoughts than someone who hasn't. But in any given moment, the thought that comes up is outside of our control. Button gets pushed and here comes something. It's uh, just the whole uh, dependent co-arising <clears throat> that Roshi and the Buddha have talked about. 
<clears throat> and then he goes into more of the various techniques for not taking thoughts so seriously. I'm going to go skip past those. But he does, here's something interesting. <clears throat> he says, what if a thought is both true and serious? For instance, you're, if you're dying from cancer and have the thought, I'll be dead soon. From an act perspective, we are far more interested in whether a thought is helpful than whether it's true or false, serious or ridiculous, negative or positive, optimistic or pessimistic. The bottom line is always the same. Does this thought help you make the most out of life? Now, if you only have a few months to live, it's really important to reflect on what you, how you want to spend them. What loose ends do you need to tie up? What do you want to do? And to whom do you want to see before you die? So a thought like, I'll be dead soon, could be helpful if it motivates you to reflect and take effective action. If that's the case, you wouldn't try to defuse such a thought. You'd pay attention to it and use it to help you to do what you need to do. But if that thought becomes an obsession and you keep playing it over and over in your head, then would it be helpful to spend your last weeks of life thinking all day long, I'll be dead soon, giving all your attention to that thought instead of to the loved ones around you? And he uh, argues that if the silly voice method works for you, you can use it there too, even though it seems the thought is so serious. And finally, he says, all these methods, <clears throat> voices and singing and stepping back and labeling, are merely stepping stones. Down the line, you can expect to diffuse your thoughts instantly without the need for such contrived techniques, although there will always be times when it's useful to pull them out of your psychological toolkit. I think for a lot of people uh, who have some practice under their belt, uh, once you know you're thinking, once you see the thought is getting in the way, it's a little easier to uh, have that separation, not completely buy into it, whatever horror story you're telling yourself. Then he goes on to something more about diffusion that, that I think is really interesting. So uh, this, this chapter is called Troubleshooting Diffusion. And it starts off, Diffusion doesn't work, snapped John. What do you mean, I asked. Well, he said, I had to give this presentation at work in front of about 50 people. My mind kept telling me I was going to screw up and make a fool of myself, so I tried those diffusion techniques, but they did nothing. You mean you kept buying into the story that you'd screw up? No, it helped with that. I stopped taking it seriously. Then why do you say diffusion doesn't work? Because I still felt anxious. John, I said, I've been giving talks in public for over 20 years, and I still feel anxious every time I get up there. I've met hundreds of people who speak to audiences, audiences as part of their profession, and I've always asked them, do you get anxious when you give a talk? So far, almost every single person has said yes. The point is, if you're going to put yourself in any sort of challenging situation, if you're going to take any significant risk, then anxiety is a normal emotion. It will be there, and diffusing negative thoughts is not going to get rid of it. Control, control strategies become problematic when they're used excessively or inappropriately in situations where they can't work, or when using them reduces our quality of life in the long term. Diffusion is the very opposite of a controlling strategy. It's an acceptance strategy. In act, rather than attempting to change, avoid, or get rid of unpleasant thoughts or feelings, our aim is to accept them. Doesn't mean you like your uncomfortable thoughts. <clears throat> um, this, this points up something which he gets into uh, more later, but um, <clears throat> I want to, I only have so much time and I can't really go into all of that, but it gets into the 
uh, sort of paradox of uh, using anything, any technique or zazen in order to achieve an effect. For instance, the, the classic example is someone who's struggling with anxiety, which is kind of what we're talking about with fear of public speaking, and uh, does anything, let's say just accepts the feeling, uh, or tries to defuse the thoughts, as in this case that he gave, in order to have the anxiety go away. When that's the end goal, when you're doing practice so that you won't feel bad, or when you're doing practice so that you will become enlightened, or any other uh, explicit goal, when you're doing practice for something other than its own sake, you're always going to be muddying the waters, and the mind isn't going to be able to settle. If you're trying to get rid of the problem, then you're making more problem. That's, that's just the way the system functions. That's just the nature of the reality of our minds. And it really takes, it takes kind of humility and faith. At some point we have to be willing to say, I, I don't have control. <clears throat> I, I have control over some things. I can control what I do. I can cross my legs and do zazen. I can bring up that painful subject with a loved one. I can do the work I don't feel like doing, but I can't control how I feel. I can't make things better by trying to fight them or running away from them. When you begin to come to the understanding that your safety zone is actually connect connection and acceptance, when you learn, say, sitting with pain, unavoidable pain in Zazen, when you learn that the way through that is to take it in completely, it's an amazing thing to find out. And it's also extremely amazing to realize that what works on a physical level works on a mental and emotional level. It's always limits to how well we can do it, but uh, what he, as he points out later in the book that I'm not going to get to, um, when you value something, it's not a question of that being your goal, it's more like that's your direction. If your value is to go to the West, then wherever you are, you head West. If your value is to come to awakening, then there's always moving in that direction. And even if there is some sort of insight that comes, believe me, you're still moving, you're still uh, needing to move in that direction. That's why it's so uh, heartwarming that there's that saying in, J in Japan, somewhere the Buddha is still working on himself. Uh, it's really easy to get into a perfectionist kind of state of mind, wanting to be a certain way, wanting to be a certain kind of person. It's totally unnecessary. All this really called on is to be ourselves to be there for what's going on. Uh, I think that there are a lot of different therapies that can help us do that, and I think that Zazen can help us uh, with that. I think stepping up and, and doing what needs to be done uh, can help. The one thing that, that really, I think, something like this adds to practice is it encourages us to actually reflect. You know, there's a thing that uh, <clears throat> many people do in AA. Uh, in AA, one of the steps is took a uh, inventory of myself, a fearless inventory, and uh, when I was wrong, promptly admitted it. And a lot of people do that on a daily basis. Uh, it's not such a bad thing to, at the end of the day, just stop and think, you know, what could I have done better? Where did I shut down when I could have opened up? There's nothing more inspiring than when someone admits their fault. When someone can say, you know what, I wasn't listening when you were speaking. You know, I was too busy trying to defend myself. Uh, I, I, you know, <clears throat> it's the best that we can do.
admit where we've fallen down. It's not that we're an imposter, it's that we're, we're unfinished, we're a work in progress. Everyone is a work in progress, including other people. And one of the measures of how well we're able to accept our own failings and take in our own pain is how well can we accept the failings and the pain of other people. It's, it's, it's kind of sobering to watch how often we try to short-circuit the pain that other people may be finding, often in what seem like helpful ways. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Sometimes what we need to do is just to sit with it, just to take it on. Well, <clears throat> I feel that I have done an inadequate job of summarizing this whole book, but um, again, the name is The Happiness Trap. The author is Russ Harris. Um, if you're interested, I encourage you to get it and, uh, and go through it. And if not, on to the next thing. <clears throat> we'll stop now and recite the four vows.